All right, Ezekiel chapter 20, we're going to put in at verse 45, and our plan is to get to verse 17 of chapter 21. The title of our message tonight, Only You Can Endure Forest Fires. You'll see why I chose that title in a minute, or you won't see, but uh, I chose it anyway. You want to hear my title for Sunday morning? Because you're Wednesday night. It's the David and Goliath, right? How to get ahead in life. You have to laugh again Sunday or I'll be hurt. All right, so, uh, (laughs) all right, we're in Ezekiel tonight, so let's get our Ezekiel caps on. Paul Anka heard a French version of a popular song. There was something about it that reminded him of Frank Sinatra. He acquired the rights to it, and then he rewrote some of the lyrics to better reflect the career and life of the singer. The result was what I call the defiant song, My Way, Frank Sinatra's signature song. It ends like this, For what is a man, what has he got? If not himself, then he has not. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels, the record shows I took the blows and did it my way. Pretty sad from the point of view that life is eternal and that every knee will one day bow to Jesus Christ and there is a record being kept in heaven. So it's, it's just a very sad signature song uh, for somebody to have. And I, I was thinking about that. I'm just, this is just something you can answer in your own heart. But if your life was a song right now, what song would it be? Uh, there's a lot of great choices, I'm sure. I only ask that because our text tonight will end in a song. It's another lament. It's a pretty sad song. But that's what you'd expect from a prophet who was giving a message of God's sure and complete judgment upon his people. I mean, Ezekiel is not in a time where he's going around singing zippity-doo-dah. It's not that kind of a time in the nation. In the Hebrew text, verse 45 of chapter 21 is the first verse... Uh, or chapter 20, excuse me, is the first verse of chapter 21. When the books of the Bible were originally written, as I'm sure you know, they did not contain chapter and verse references. The Bible was divided into chapters and verses to help us find Scripture more quickly and easily. It's much easier to say, turn to Psalm 22, than to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, you might recognize that as Psalm 22 because it's famous, But uh, if I told you to turn to some obscure passage of Scripture that we haven't memorized, you'd have a hard time finding it. This was always fun about going to Calvary Costa Mesa on a Sunday night because Pastor Chuck assumed you knew where he was in the through the Bible teaching. And so after the worship, he would just get up and start talking from Scripture. He'd start quoting Scripture without telling you where he was. And it would take some people pretty much all night to figure out where he was, you know, if you're in Chronicles or Kings or something like that. So it's pretty, pretty comical. Uh, the chapter divisions commonly used today were developed by a guy named Stephen Langton. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury. He put the modern chapter divisions into place around 1227 A.D., I'm told. The Wycliffe English Bible of 1382 was the first Bible to use this chapter pattern. Since the Wycliffe Bible, nearly all Bible translations have followed Langton's chapter divisions. The Hebrew Old Testament was divided into verses by a rabbi, 
by the name of Nathan in 1448. Robert Estienne, who was also known as Stephanus, was the first to divide the New Testament into standard numbered verses in 1555. Stephanus essentially used Nathan's revised, uh, or excuse me, verse divisions for the Old Testament. And since that time, beginning with the Geneva Bible, the chapter and verse divisions employed by these guys have been accepted in nearly all Bible versions. And so that's where that comes. So, so when I get up and I say, well, this verse really begins over here, it, it, you know, I'm not changing the inspired Word of God. I'm just referring to the ancient Hebrew texts which saw that. And you'll see why, because contextually it starts a whole new topic. The first 44 verses of chapter 20 looked far into the future uh, at the millennium and beyond to the ultimate regathering and restoration of the nation of Israel. Beginning with verse 45, we're back squarely in the 6th century B.C. talking about the impending invasion of Judah and Jerusalem by the Babylonian army. And so, beginning in chapter 20, verse 45, Furthermore, the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, set your face toward the south. Preach against the south and prophesy against the forest land, the south. And say to the forest of the south, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will kindle a fire in you, and it shall devour every green tree and every dry tree in you. The blazing flame shall not be quenched, and all faces from the south to the north shall be scorched by it. All flesh shall see that I, the Lord, have kindled it. It shall not be quenched. Now, Ezekiel referred to Judah as south or the south here uh, because, first of all, it was the southern kingdom of Israel. The, uh, you remember after the time of Solomon, Israel split into two separate kingdoms. They were called Israel to the north, ten tribes, Judah to the south, two tribes. By the time we're reading this, Israel had long been overrun by the Assyrian Empire, which was then conquered by the Babylonian Empire, and so there were... No, there was no Israel to the north, just Judah to the south. And so the Babylonians would come upon them from the north when they invaded. And so it would be like God saying it's going to be like a forest fire coming into the south. And the analogy of the forest seems to be that the trees represent the people of Judah, not the actual forest. He's not just saying, well, the, they're going to burn the forests. Uh, he's saying that the people there are, are the forests that are going to be scorched and burned. Every green tree, therefore, would be the righteous, those who were believers. Every dry tree would be the unrighteous, those who were non-believers. If you were here for our last study in Ezekiel, we talked about God's election of the nation of Israel and what that meant, that the nation was chosen to be his nation and that he would work with the nation. But within that election the individual still needed to be saved or they could be non-believers and the saved were the righteous or, in this case, the green tree. Now, was God going to destroy the righteous with the wicked? You might recall from an earlier passage that God had gone through the land marking the righteous. They would be spared, but not entirely. They would not be killed, but they would have to endure the calamity that was coming upon the nation. The fire was coming upon the forest, upon both green tree and dry tree, both believer and unbeliever, because it was a national crisis. For the dry trees, it would mean utter destruction. For the green trees, I think you can uh, say that it would be a refining process. Even in a natural forest, 
Some trees have a greater chance of survival than others. Think of this fire as God's controlled burn upon His people. And so the fire was coming. There was nothing you could do about that. Whether you were righteous or unrighteous, this judgment was coming. If you were a righteous man or woman, a green tree, then the fire would not destroy you. It would refine you. It would strengthen you. As individual believers, we claim the promise of 1 Peter 4.12. A little bit different look at fire. Peter said, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. Some of you are wishing I hadn't mentioned that tonight because now you think, oh no, he's talking to me. Tomorrow some fiery trial is going to overcome me. Well, aren't you glad that you'll be prepared for it now? Some of you have just come through a fiery trial. Congratulations, you made it, you've been refined, and uh, you've got more coming later. Uh, Because God continues to reward you with a sense of His presence and blessing. Peter here, when he compared the persecution of Christians to fire, he had a particular type of fire in mind, not just a forest fire like Ezekiel was talking about. In the first chapter of his letter, he compared faith to gold that is tested by fire. And so he was talking about the controlled fire that a refiner of gold uses to purify and purge the raw ore into something more beautiful and useful. The ore must be cast into a mold and heated, I'm told, to at least 1,900 degrees Fahrenheit. And as it is heated, the impurities within the raw ore rise to the surface where they can be skimmed off. The refiner, I'm told, knows all the impurities are gone when the heated gold is mirror-like, meaning that he can better see his reflection in that uh, molten ore. And, and what a beautiful picture that is of what God is doing, turning up the heat through the fires of persecution or of uh, trials so that he can skim some things off of our lives so that as he looks at our life and as other people look at our life, they see him reflected there. You know, if you ask any Christian, you know, do you want to be more like Jesus Christ? Oh, yes, sign me up. I'm all for that. I want to be conformed into his image day by day and minute by minute. And then God says that, well, one of the primary ways or a key way that I do that is through uh, trials and uh, sufferings. I turn up the heat in your life because there's some impurities. And you remember, I mean, maybe it's just me, but when I'm going through a trial, when I get towards the end of it or to the end of it, I always feel bad about the fact that I didn't do better in the trial. Are you like that? Where you're like, why did I whine and complain and, you know, and God, what are you doing? And, and if you're shaking your head, I'll pray for you afterwards. But anyway... Uh, you know, you just, and you look back and you think, ah, oh, this was a trial. I got First Peter 4.12 tattooed on the back of my eyelids and, you know, but I just don't understand this. And, and, and then you, but you think, oh, well, that was that, that's what God is skimming off. He's skimming off that dross, that impurity, that part of me that still doesn't really receive his chastening or his trial or his fire uh, and, and leaving me better on the other end of it. I mean, I love God because... You know, if you read the book of Job, I mean, just between you and me, I don't think Job does very good. I don't think he does very well at all. As you're reading his dialogue with his friends in the middle part of the book, I mean, he's kind of bummed out. 
But when you get to the end of the book, God is saying to the devil, he says, look at Job. I mean, the guy's fantastic. I love the guy. Look, he came through the fire refined like gold and he loves me more than he loved me before. And, 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 and it's like, you know, that's what happens. Job learned some things about himself. About himself, rather. He said, I, you know, I, I used to know about him by the hearing of the ear, but now I really see the Lord. Uh, and so that's what God is doing. Jesus is our refiner. He has control over the heat and the duration. He's looking to see his reflection in our life. Now, the forest fire seems pretty straightforward. Ezekiel, however, now has an observation for the Lord in verse 49. Then I said, Ah, Lord, they say of me, does he not speak parables? Now, the disciples of Jesus asked the Lord or said something uh, to the Lord like this. You know, why are you speaking to us in parables? Why do you speak to the people in parables? And Jesus answered and he said this, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to him who has will more be given and he will have an abundance, but from him who has not, Even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. With them indeed is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which says, You shall indeed hear, but never understand. You shall indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears are heavy of hearing. Their eyes have closed. Sounds like me at night on the chair in the living room, you know. But anyway, and their eyes they have closed. Pam's trying to talk to me, and I'm like, oh, honey... Are you asleep? No, no. How many of you lie to your wife and say, no, I'm not asleep? Not now. I was, but I'm not now. I'm awake. Do you ever, do you ever do this? People call you in the middle of the night and say, did I wake you? And they say, no, I had to get up and answer the phone. <laughs> of course you woke me. What do you think? It's 3.30 in the morning. No, I'm, I was waiting for your emergency call. But anyway, then he goes on and says, for this people's heart has grown dull, their ears are heavy of hearing, their eyes have closed, lest they should perceive with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and turn to me. Uh, to heal them. My pastor in San Bernardino, sometimes to see if people were awake, he would say things like, the deaf see, the blind hear, and the dead have the gospel preached to them. <laughs> people would be like, you know, what? what did he just say? But anyway, Isaiah is talking about, Isaiah is not saying God doesn't want to minister to his people or that he doesn't want to reach his people or he doesn't want his people. He's, he's not fooling anybody. The idea is that these people... They were in sin and they had grown dull of hearing. They didn't want to see what God was showing them. And so God says, well, I'll talk to them in parables. I'll give them pictures. I'll set things one aside the other and they'll have to dig for it. Since they won't hear directly, I'm going to judge you. Let me talk to them. Maybe you'll understand if I talk to you about a forest fire. But in, in essence, what the people did was would, would say, Ezekiel, we don't understand you. Why do you talk in riddles? Why don't you talk directly? And I'm sure Ezekiel wanted to say, why talk directly? Because when I did that, you, didn't understand, you acted like you didn't understand. Jeremiah has been talking directly for years. And nobody wants to hear him. They all shut him up. And so, uh, you know, so Ezekiel says, Lord, you know, they're telling me that I'm talking in parables. They're not getting it. A better question than why are you speaking in parables would be what? What does the parable mean? I mean, that's the idea. It's like, oh, the prophet is talking to us in parables. This is getting serious. Now, if you were a Jew that knew anything about your history, now is the time. If you're going to think about repenting, now is the time. When God starts to garble his message, when you're not really understanding the word of the Lord anymore, now is the time to repent because God wants to be understood. 
Parables as a method of teaching thus has an initial effect of revealing the spiritual temperature of the hearers. If they complain about them, acting like they couldn't understand them, pretty good indication that their hearts had grown cold. It was God's way of revealing to everyone, hey, your heart's cold, I'm going to talk to you in parables, see if that kind of jumpstarts you or gets the paddles on your hearts. And if that doesn't work, uh, I don't know what else to do. But those who love the Lord, they would dig into these parables or they would understand them immediately. They would say, wow, you know, the, it's, it's going to be like a forest fire. And to me, this is, this is uh, you know, I mean, God comes and he, he could say, I'm going to come, the Babylonians are going to... This is what he told Habakkuk. He says, you're not going to like it, but the Babylonian army is going to come and destroy Israel. I mean, he was very direct with Habakkuk. I would rather God say, forest fire's coming. And the green trees are going to be in it and the dry trees. And then you could think, you know, if I'm a green tree, I can survive this thing. It's like a controlled burn. It's going to get hot. Some of my bark's going to burn. But all of the junk that's gathered under my life or whatever, you know, whatever, why ever they do control burns, you know, so that the whole thing doesn't burn, it's actually going to be beneficial in the long run. It's going to pr- pr- produce new fertile ground. And so, so parables are great if you're a sincere believer because you dig into them and you see that God loves you and cares for you and is going to deal with you in that way. Now, the Lord responded to Ezekiel in typical Lord fashion with another parable. So Ezekiel says, they're complaining because I only talked to them in parables. So he says, where the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face toward Jerusalem, preach against the holy places, prophesy against the land of Israel. And say to the land of Israel, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm against you. I'm going to draw my sword out of its sheath and cut off both righteous and wicked from you. Because I will cut off both righteous and wicked from you, therefore my sword shall go out of its sheath against all flesh from south to north, that all flesh may know that I, the Lord, have drawn my sword out of its sheath. It shall not return anymore. Again, because we know what's happening historically from hindsight, and also if we were contemporary, we'd know from what Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Habakkuk and others had been saying, the Babylonians were coming. From heaven's perspective, they were the sword in the hand of the Lord. He was using them as a weapon to judge His people. Again, we see that the righteous would have to endure this situation along with the unrighteous. It was going to get tough. But things, you know, things have always been relatively tough for the people of God. Uh, It's never an easy thing to to walk with the Lord. Uh, And when it is then you start to have other kinds of problems, internal problems. Uh, your doctrine gets askew and you start to have pride and, and you start to trust in the things of this world. So it's tough. But for the right, So the righteous have a lot to endure, whether, whether government is against them or whether government is for them. The righteous are always in a tough spot. Uh, and, and certainly when a nation like Israel is being judged, but again, God had marked the righteous. They would suffer, but they would not be destroyed. The invasion would come from the north, as I said. Here he talks about from south to north. I get from that that once the armies reached the south, they would return north. Uh, and so it was kind of like they're just going to be, they're going to destroy you and they're going to keep on destroying you back and forth. Uh, this is going to be a complete invasion. There's not going to be any place to hide. Now, as we've seen repeatedly in these prophecies of Ezekiel, nothing could now stop the Lord's plans to use Babylon against Israel. The time for their national repentance was past. Individually, they could still repent. God is always reaching out to individuals. 
uh, unbelievers not willing that any should perish. doesn't matter if it's Old Testament or New. He doesn't want any to perish. Uh, and, and even in the conquest of the land of Canaan, people say, well, you know, God wanted everybody killed. Well, yeah, but if there was a Rahab, he, he was happy to save her. Uh, if the Gibeonites made some kind of crazy deal with the Jews, he was happy to, to save them. Uh, so, you know, he told Jonah, go to Nineveh, tell them in 40 days, that's it. It's done. They repented. God was happy to save them because he's not willing that any should perish. He always acts according to his nature, which is to seek and to save that which is lost. But here he's saying, nationally speaking, the nation is going to be judged. Individually, you can be saved, but nationally, you're going down. Let me mention something that is just slightly out of context. A lot of times, something happens in our world, some catastrophe, and certain Christians immediately explain it as the direct judgment of God. Have you heard that? Sure you have. Don't jump on that bandwagon. Even if something is or might be the direct judgment of God, our response ought to be one of compassion upon the people. Follow the lead of groups like Samaritan's Purse. Uh, I, I don't know when God is judging. He owes us some judgment, doesn't he? I mean, for our sins as a nation and all. So, uh, I mean, I don't want to start to speculate on what is judgment and what isn't. Uh, and, uh, but, and so I believe God still does judge, sure, but I don't know, and he's not writing any prophecies to me about it. And so when some hurricane or natural disaster or flood or whatever it might be, earthquake, let's just help the people or help the people that are helping the people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and you know, the, because the greater judgment is coming, the judgment of eternal life. Uh, and so our goal is to reach those people. Ezekiel is next called upon. He hasn't done this for a while, but he's going to give a visual aid to the parable. Remember, Ezekiel is our resident Israeli thespian. He's quite an actor, and he's, he's done many dramas throughout this, and this is going to be his latest one. In verse 6, Sigh, therefore, son of man, with a breaking heart, and sigh with bitterness before their eyes. This is like an actor's studio. I, I have no ability to act whatsoever. I tried for drama and all that, you know, because oh, that's where all the cute chicks were. But anyway, you know, I can't act at all. And it's funny, you know, people who think they can act and then you get all weird just even on a video camera. and you, it's, it's crazy. So I have a lot of respect for actors. You know, they have like a camera that's right in their face, you know, and stuff. And they're acting out these scenes. And so here, you know, uh, this, is, this reminds me of you're in the actor's studio and the director says... Sigh with a breaking heart. Let me see sigh with a breaking heart. Okay? Let me see sigh with bitterness. And you know, there are actors who could do that and actresses who could... And you think, yeah, yeah, she, that looks like a person with a broken heart. Every now and then, you'll be watching a movie or even on television and you're, you're stunned with somebody's acting. Aren't you just riveted with the... the I mean, it's, it's like you think you're really there because they're such great actors. Uh, and so, so, so God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to sigh with a breaking heart and sigh with bitterness before their eyes. Drama definitely can be used for ministry. Uh, and uh, some, a lot of you have seen different drama presentations or been part of drama teams and stuff like that. When, usually when we take teams of, of high schoolers or junior hires down to foreign countries, we always do some uh, drama, some Christian dramas that are nonverbal so that they break language barriers. And it's, it's, all, it's a really great ministry. For a few years here, we had a guy in our church. It was a little bit creepy, but he was a mime. He was a mime. He was a pretty good mime. But, you know, mimes are creepy. They're creepy. They're creepier. Mimes are the only people that creep out clowns. 
clowns are creepy. Every, people are afraid of clowns, you know, and stuff. And, and, uh, you know, but mimes are a little bit creepier than clowns. But it, he had a great drama ministry, and you can act out a lot of good things in that. Uh, and so if there's any, you know, kind of frustrated thespians here, I mean, I'm totally open to a decent, well-done drama ministry. I think it'd be fantastic. But Ezekiel definitely was the head of the drama team uh, at that time. Drawn in by the drama, when the audience asked about it, Ezekiel would give them first a short dialogue. I don't know if the soliloquy is the right term for it. Probably not. It's a cool word, though. It's one of those words that soliloquy. I like saying it. Anyway, verse 7, And it shall be when they say to you, Why are you sighing? That you shall answer, Because of the news, when it comes, every heart will melt, all hands will be feeble, every spirit will faint, all knees will be weak as water. Behold, it is coming and shall be brought to pass, says the Lord God. Think of James Earl Jones saying that, or Patrick Stewart, or Jeremy Irons, you know, or one of these guys with these recognizable voices. You know? and so so Jeremiah, Ezekiel's out there and he's sighing to show a bitter heart. I'm not even going to try. And he's doing all this crazy sighing. And then, and then the, you know, whether there was a plant in the audience or it was just natural for them to say, why are you sighing? Then he'd say... Because of the news when it comes, you know, I can't do it, but you know that you get the idea It'd be like, wow, that's really powerful. And so he was representing to them their own future broken hearts and sighing. His performance would then conclude with a song. Commentators point out that the verses eight through 17 are in the poetic form of a lament to be sung, or I would say at least parts that are not explanations by the Lord are to be sung. And so these verses contain a song that Ezekiel would sing along with the Lord uh, speaking to them, uh, to, excuse me, to him about them. And so, so he'd do this sighing, he'd have this little narrative, and then he would sing this song. Uh, and and uh, parts of it are in here. Verse 8, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, say, A sword, a sword is sharpened and also polished. Sharpened to make a dreadful slaughter, polished to flash like lightning, should we then make mirth? It despises the scepter of my son as it does all wood. He has given it to be polished. Anyway, that it may be, <laughs> that it may be handled. This sort. You know, when my kids were little and I read the Lord of the Rings to them, that was all powerful. They thought I was great, but now they realize I'm just a bum. This sword is sharpened and is polished to be given to the hand of the third. So that's a, that's a lament that he would do in some kind of a meter or a song. It's the song of the sword, we would say, a dirge that captures the destruction from the point of view of the sword in the hand of the Lord. Cry and wail, son of man, verse 12, for it will be against my people, against all the princes of Israel. Terrors, including the sword, will be against my people. Therefore, strike your thigh, because this is a testing and what if the sword despises even the scepter? The scepter shall be no more, says the Lord God. Man, this is dramatic. This is the Academy Awards. This is the Tony Award. I mean, this is it. Very animated song. And, and you know, uh, the Jewish people very animated as, uh, uh, you know, in their culture anyway, uh, including crying and wailing and the striking of the thigh. I think Ezekiel had a sword and also employed some, you know, sword play. And, and uh, you know, he'd be polishing this sword and doing all this stuff. The word for scepter here is rod. It signifies the governing authorities. In this case, the appointed governor of Judah, Zedekiah. 
whose backroom political dealings with Egypt against God's will and word were largely to blame for the final assault on the nation and its capital. Verse 14, You therefore, son of man, prophesy and strike your hands together. The third time let the sword do double damage. It is the sword that slays the sword that slays the great men that enters even their private chambers. Uh, the third time here refers to the third and final invasion of Jerusalem that was pending. You see, as you know from reading the book and history, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's armies had been down twice. Uh, and Nebuchadnezzar was content to leave Judah as a vassal state, as a tributary. But because the Jews wouldn't heed the word of the Lord and they tried to ally with Egypt, Nebuchadnezzar, hey, what choice do you have if you're a despot and people that you're trying to rule try and overthrow you? You've got to kill those people. You've got to go down there and show them who's boss. I mean, what good is it being the world-ruling empire if you can't slaughter some people when you need to? You know? And so he said, that's it, 586 B.C., thereabout. He goes down and he takes care of business in Jerusalem. Verse 15, I have set the point of the sword against all their gates that the heart may melt and many may stumble. Ah, it is made bright, it is grasped for slaughter. Swords at the ready, thrust right, set your blade, thrust left. Wherever your edge is ordered, I also will beat my fists together and I will cause my fury to rest. I, the Lord, have spoken. And so Ezekiel is busy striking his hands together to demonstrate that God is beating his fists together. It's, it's, you know, we always think of clapping, but this is more like a gesture, striking or clapping the hands to indicate perhaps the next movement or to call something else onto the stage, you know, kind of, kind of like a one, of the, one of these, you know, and then they'd move into the next movement with the sword or his next dialogue. And so he's acting all of this out. God choreographing the coming invasion, producing it, directing it. If there were credits at the end, it'd be produced by God, directed by God, brought to you by God. And, uh, you know, I'm making light of it, but, uh, you know, this is what's happening. We may not be called to a drama ministry like that of Ezekiel, but our lives are described in the New Testament as letters that are read by others out in the world. And much of what they're going to read is nonverbal in the way we carry ourselves and in our body language. And this is why I've developed uh, a method of talking in my car without moving my mouth. You know, when people cut you off and stuff and you... you what an idiot! That guy's a real jerk! I have to be careful again. I had to be careful when the kids were little. Now I have to be careful again when my grandchildren are in the car because you don't want them to pick up those habits. They'll learn them on their own, so you don't want them to pick them up from you, you know. But, but it's a real art to smile and keep your mouth, lips from me. Hey, idiot, uh, you know. You don't call anybody idiot. What do I call, you know, it, you know, whatever. <laughs> so you have to be careful even about your body language. Uh, and um, I, had, I, I don't know if I've ever told this story but uh, I remember one time, before, you understand that before I was a Christian, I was a complete reprobate. You know, I mean, just like you, like many of you uh, were before you were Christians. Hopefully not now. And so I remember this was when we were living on 25th Street in San Bernardino or 28th, I think it's 25th Street. And, and uh, I was driving my car and one of the neighbors who I didn't really know very well down the street, he kind of stopped abruptly in front of me and I, you know, I didn't really say anything to him, but I kind of cussed him out in the car, you know, just to myself and stuff. And when I get out of the car, he's down there going, 
you know, because he had seen me and he's like, he's choosing me off, you know. Well, I'm really kind of a chicken at heart, you know, and stuff. So I talked myself out of that one. But, you know, you can get yourself in a lot of trouble with your body language if it's... So after that, I'm like, always, hey, how you doing? But uh, anyway, uh, your life, be aware that people are looking at you. Uh, Let the Lord fill you. He'll animate your features, your gestures, your movements to better reflect His glory. One final thought tonight since we're talking about singing and the Lord and different things. verse that I really like uh, and most of you uh, remember, Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is in your midst, the Mighty One. He will save and He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. We're familiar with singing to and about God. We did it tonight. We're going to do it some more. We do it all the time. How often do you think about God singing over you? Well, now, God was singing to and over the Israelites, but not the kind of song that you want to hear. But God says in the Word, He says, I want to sing over you. I want to sing over you. And so it's just incumbent on us to be faithful to the Lord. Not sinless, not perfect, just faithful so that the Lord can sing over us. Again, looking at Job. Was Job completely perfect through his trial? No, he, he had some real moments. Uh, but at the end, God, you know, in a sense, sung over him before Satan. He said, this is my servant Job. And, and you know, maybe even did break into a song. And so we want to keep our lives in a place of faithfulness, serving the Lord, confessing sin, not perfect, but moving forward so that we have a sense that God is rejoicing over us, talking to the angels in heaven, saying, hey, have you seen, have you seen Pam? Have you seen you know, Sharon? Have you seen Rob? Have you seen my son, my daughter? Have you seen them? And then God, bre- can you imagine God breaking into songs like a musical in heaven? There she goes. You know, or something, I don't know, but you know, I'm sure it's a beautiful thing. I mean, God sings. What do you think about God? Do you always think about, you know, do you think of Him as an architect or a builder or a creator? I mean, you know, how do you think about God? God is a singer. In all, I mean, He does all those other things too. He's a judge. He's, you know, He's all the... God is a singer. And He sings over you, or at least He wants to. And all of our lives, I do think, do produce a melody. And, and, you know, sometimes it's not as happy a melody as, as it ought to be. But even in those times, you know, there, there are even, there's some sweet tragedies. Uh, you know, think of Fiddler on the Roof, right? I mean, Tevia and Fiddler on the Roof and the hope that the Jews have, even though the Russians are crushing them, even though everything is changing. Uh, it's hopeful. And, and so even if you're in a time of stress and tragedy, God can sing a song over you that's hopeful and beautiful. Uh, And so just think about that. Your life has a soundtrack, and it's being performed by God. It's not available on iTunes, uh, but I think one day you'll be able to hear it in your mansion in heaven. I think it'll be piped in. Uh, I I think that'd be cool. You know, just after you tour your house in heaven and your yard and everything like that, and then God says, hey, just push, push B, you know, and stuff, and you push, and the soundtrack of your life, and what a beautiful thing that will be. I just made that up, but it's cool.